0: what's up everybody welcome to the cola cast this podcast is a presentation of the cola corporation the cola corporation is a streetwear brand that is based in chicago illinois my name is cola i am the artist and designer behind the brand and i am joined once again by my good friend and yours derek derek how you doing buddy i'm excellent how are you i am okie dokie thank you today we are talking about please kill me the uncensored oral history of punk which is a book that came out in 1996 written or compiled by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain. I read the book for the first time in 1996, when it first came out. And at the time, I was thinking of people like Lou Reed and Patti Smith as sort of role models. Like they were so cool. I wanted to create art like they did. I wanted to have their attitude. I wanted to have their lifestyle. And now being older, maybe wiser, when I look at this book, Jesus, what a bunch of spoiled brats. The book also has a bunch of stuff that admittedly I did not catch in 1996 when I first read it, which would be the problematic aspects like the homophobic slurs talk about sexual assaults. So trigger warning, there is going to be some racism, homophobia, and there is going to be some talk about sexual assaults, which has just gone completely unnoticed and uncriticized for a lot of these guys. Lately, a lot of older musicians have sort of blown people's minds, like Johnny Rotten wearing a MAGA cap. Glenn Danzig is now like a reactionary. And this isn't like Ted Nugent or Kid Rock, chug Rockers. This is like people who were involved in punk rock and supposedly anti-authority, and how can they be reactionary? And kind of what I got from the second reading was that For a lot of these people, punk rock had nothing to do with being anti-authority or anti-establishment. It was never a political stance for them, which is something that we'll see explicitly when we talk about the New York Dolls and how Malcolm McLaren tried to manage them. Legs McNeil talks about this, specifically how punk wasn't political. This is also something to keep in mind that we're talking about a very specific time, the origin of punk. This book could almost be called the uncensored history of proto-punk or the uncensored history of American or early American punk, right? So it's hard to talk about punk because it's this Huge thing, but this book basically starts in 65. It runs through to 92, but really, for all intents and purposes, when you look at the music and the bands coming out, it's kind of like 65 to 77. So, in any event, after the second reading, what I really saw was the people in here were really not anti establishment or anti authority. They simply wanted to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, regardless of how it impacted anybody else, and they didn't want to face any repercussions. It's a very childish view. That is perfectly in sync with conservatism. That's all my sort of big takeaway. I'm interested in your thoughts on the book as a whole.
1: Yeah, that book along with Our Band Could Be Your Life were two that I remember reading in probably my mid to late teens and being kind of flabbergasted at some of the shit I was seeing, uh, a lot of the stuff that you just summarized. Uh, I think the Please Kill Me is a good summation of that overall time period, not only of like rock and the scene, but also you get instance, or I'm sorry, you get uh, insight into the aesthetic and what what style and you know, kind of or how they presented themselves and kind of what that looked like. There are a few
0: records, The Velvet Underground Banana Album and Wu-Tang Clan 36 Chambers. I think if those albums came out today, I think that record would still blow minds. So Danny Fields talks a little bit about this in the book when he says that 20 years after Raw Power came out, Raw Power by the Stooges, he would listen to it and it still sounded advanced to him. It just blows my mind. to think the Stooges happened in the 60s. They are the furthest thing from 1960s culture I can think of.
1: When you look at the discography of the uh, the banana record of The Velvet Underground and Nico coming out in 1967, you're absolutely right. It would still blow minds today because it mixed so many things. Folks are rediscovering experimental compositions and psychedelic rock and things that are just avant-garde, I think because of when it came out and the other sort of contemporary acts, uh, it's absolutely proto-punk and well above its time, which is like why we're still talking about it.
0: So, all right, let's get into the book. So we start off in 65 with the Velvet Underground. In the book, their first manager, Al Aronowitz, he says, I gave the Velvet Underground their first gig. I put them on the opening act at the Summit High School in New Jersey. (laughs) They were just junkies, crooks, hustlers. Most of the musicians at the time came with all these high-minded ideals, but the Velvets were all full of shit. They were just hustlers. And their music was inaccessible. That's what Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager, always used to say, whether music's accessible or inaccessible. And the Velvet's music was totally inaccessible. It's interesting to me that he's saying their music is inaccessible. When I listen to The Underground, it's extremely accessible. In a way that shit from the 60s, like those bands with their high ideals, never seem accessible to me. They always seem pretentious and phony.
1: They seem pretentious and phony, but... Consider the context, which the the Velvet Underground was considered inaccessible. Uh, it reminds me of early, early Bob Dylan. You know, when he really began to find himself in the public eye. You know, the music that he grew up on was, you know, how much is that doggy in the window? That was an incredibly accessible because it was inoffensive and it was calm and cool and, you know, very suburban. I don't know that The Velvet Underground would be any more inaccessible than early Dylan.
0: Ronnie Cutrone, who is the whip dancer with The Velvet Underground, The Velvet Underground would have their backs turned to the audience playing. And then these three performers would be acting out S&M fantasies and gyrating on each other and lifting weights and all this other stuff. Ronnie Cutrone says, that's what I instantly loved about The Velvet's music. It was about urban street stuff. It was about kink. It was about sex. Some of it was about sex that I didn't know about, but I was learning. That is something that's going to come up again and again in this book is like putting the street on the stage. So I agree with him that this is accessible. I think now we're used to seeing like hustlers and the sex trade as, you know, being represented in media. But then this was completely foreign.
1: Yeah, it absolutely brought this, what they probably considered sexually and socially deviant
0: behavior uh, into the forefront of alternative music. Mary Waranoff, she said, we didn't even want to go to San Francisco. California was really strange. We weren't like them at all. They hated us. For one thing, we dressed in black leather. They dressed in wild colors. They were like, oh, wow, man, a happening. We were like reading Jean Genet. We were S&M and they were free love we really liked gay people when the West Coast was totally homophobic. So they just thought we were evil and we thought they were stupid. (laughs) Plus we were really uptight because we were all, well, I was on speed. Ed Sanders has a quote in here. The problem with the hippies was that there developed a hostility within the counterculture itself between those who had like the equivalent of a trust fund versus those who had to live by their wits. It's true, for instance, that some black people were somewhat resentful of the hippies by the Summer of Love 1967, because their perception was that these kids were burning incense and taking acid, but those kids could get out of there anytime they wanted to. They could just call their parents and leave. And one thing in this book that you really see is that this early punk, like this first wave of punk was street kids. Like these were people who were in survival mode. Maybe not so much around Warhol and the factory, because I think the factory kind of sustained people. Okay, so now we are going to move on to The Doors. It might seem strange that The Doors would be included in a book on punk. The Doors still had this kind of hippie sensibility. Our friend Ronnie Cutrone, the whip dancer, he says, you know, I loved Morrison, but I didn't like going out with him. You'd go to a bar, Jim would order eight screwdrivers, he would put six pills on the bar, drink two or three of the screwdrivers, take two of the downers. Then he'd have to pee, but he couldn't leave the other drinks, so he'd just take his dick out pee at the bar. Some girl would come over, blow his dick, then he'd finish the other screwdrivers, then he'd finish the, the other downers. Then he'd pee in his pants, and then Ronnie and another guy would have to take him home. He was like, that was a typical night out with him, but when he was on acid, he was fun. But most of the time, he was just a lush pillhead. The next quote is from Ray Manzarek, and he says, Jim was a shaman. (laughs) So it's like there's total, total contrast in perceptions of this guy. A lot of people, like Danny Fields, talks about Morrison as just a teeny bobber. He says, I took Morrison to Max's. He was a monster. He was a prick. His poetry sucked. He demeaned rock and roll as literature. Sophomore bullshit babble, maybe one or two good images. I think all of this is worth talking about because it just shows where people like Fields, who was really instrumental in signing early punk bands like the Stooges, what their perception was on all the psychedelic shit as being fake, phony. Because none of it had worked, right? This whole counterculture. It hadn't accomplished shit. Exactly. Exactly. So one thing about Morrison, he was, I think, inadvertently a transition away from sort of the psychedelic stuff because Iggy Pop saw him play at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And he comes out and he's singing in a falsetto and he's mocking all the male undergrads. Iggy Pop is talking about how, you know, these are like all these Michigan meatheads, the, you know, the future leaders of our country. They're all there to hear light my fire because that was their hit. So that's what everybody wanted to hear was Light My Fire. And Morrison just was not going to have it. He came out, he was completely confrontational, just mocking everybody. Iggy Pop sees that and is inspired and has this vision of like how to present music in a different way. There's another thing to say as we talk about this book we're only talking about like a very small amount of the stuff right. in this book there's okay, sure there's tons and tons of great information how bands got together the gossipy who slept with who stuff but there's also in terms of how they were thinking about music how they mm-hmm. made music we're just sort of scraping the surface closing the door on sort of You know, what I've been kind of calling loosely psychedelic music, psychedelic culture, the culture of the 60s. There's a a documentary called Berkeley in the 60s, where Mm -hmm. this bunch of hippies at one point, they're going to like surround the Pentagon and meditate. And (laughs) there this guy is like, we were convinced we were going to end the war in Nam, man. Just by like meditating. So in 68, when all of the shit the Democratic National Convention was here in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and there was the riot of Lincoln Park, all of that. Mm -hmm. So the MC Five showed up to play Lincoln Park. And there are all these other bands who had agreed to come. Wayne Kramer, who talks about how they're there and shit, like helicopters are coming in, they're getting ready to play, like kick out the jams or whatever cops are starting to come in and then they look around they're like where the fuck is everybody and he says in here is that janice joplin was supposed to bring the beer (laughs) like this is what they're thinking as like all hell is about to break loose it's like she was supposed to bring the beer man it's interesting. He talks about how there are agents provocateurs in the audience, like with buzz cuts and military jackets and sunglasses, mm-hmm. starting fights and creating mayhem to give the cops more reason to come in and bust heads. And this story that he tells in there is incredible of how they literally threw their shit in their van and they're driving through Lincoln park. And you know, Lincoln park, there are no roads <laughs> in Lincoln park. Yeah, so he's, not at all. He's, he's literally, they're literally driving this van through a park through grass trying to get away from the cops, it's really entertaining, but also it shows you, it's a great kind of like metaphor for this period of time ending with a thud, this hippie idealism. If you've ever seen footage from that
1: night, Millennium Park and along Michigan Avenue and just kids getting the shit beat out of them by CPD, absolutely. It just ended with a thud, that generation.
0: And also when I talk about hippies here, I do not mean to conflate the protesters in 68 with hippies at large. It's just that this moment in time seems like a clear partition between any of the sort of woo-woo idealism that had come before that. Obviously, there were serious revolutionaries and just serious political people from various organizations in Chicago in 68. Mm -hmm. And as you said, like, Daily showed what was going on at that time, which is Mm -hmm. the same thing with Nixon, which is just Mm -hmm. basically fascist, like cracking skulls in the street. So Dennis Thompson is talking about this moment. He says, Chicago was supposed to be the show of solidarity. This is the alternative culture? Come on. Where were all the other bands? No one showed up but us. That's what pissed me off. I knew the revolution was over at that moment. I looked over my shoulder and no one else was there. We were the ones who were going to get hanged. I said, this is it. There ain't no revolution. It doesn't exist. It's bullshit. The movement is dead. So after this time, the MC5 become kind of like really interestingly political. This is Wayne Kramer. So our political program became dope, rock and roll and fucking in the streets. (laughs) That was our original three point political program, which later got expanded to our 10 point program when we started to pretend that we were serious. And so these guys end up having like kind of a commune where there's one bank account and guys have money for food and if they need clothing. Wayne Kramer says, we were sexist bastards. We were not politically correct at all. We had all the rhetoric of being revolutionary and new and different, but really what it was, was the boys get to go fuck and the girls can't complain about it. And if the girls did complain, they were being bourgeois bitches, counter-revolutionary. Yep, we were real shitty about it. We tried free love and that didn't work. So we went back to the traditional way No, honey, I didn't fuck nobody on the road. And by the way, I got to go to the VD clinic. And so this is something that like pops up a lot in the book. And we've kind of mentioned this is like how much chauvinism towards women, but also just like phobia were evident in these supposedly cutting edge progressive people.
1: It's not really a surprise to me because you're you're not just talking about music and and genre bending approaches to art. You're talking about human beings. And for a more modern example, uh, if anybody is familiar with the bands Dag Nasty, DYS, uh, Down by Law, uh, Dave Smalley, the original, I think the original singer of uh, Dag Nasty is a, a total conservative Republican. And uh, I've been in discussions and almost arguments talking about, can you be conservative politically and still be punk, quote unquote, whatever that means. So it's not a new topic and it's not anything that's going to be going away anytime soon, especially uh, given how things are rapidly changing.
0: The MC5, they start messing around with like being the White Panther Party. But there is this great anecdote that Wayne Kramer says, he says, I was walking up to our house one day and I heard kaboom. And then all these sirens coming from just a couple blocks away. Just then, John Sinclair's buddy, Pun, came riding up on a bicycle and gave his girlfriend, Jeannie, a revolutionary hug. Pun was a tough guy. He was out of the penitentiary for reefer and was really surly. Pun really got into left-wing rhetoric and the ersatz politics of the day. He became the minister of defense of the White Panther Party. I said to Pun, what did you just bomb? He whispered, the CIA. I said, right on. Power to the people. <laughs> he, he had tossed a bomb at the CIA recruiting office at the University of Michigan. It didn't kill anybody, just blew a hole in the sidewalk and freaked everybody out. That's a great story. Secondly, <laughs> there's a CIA recruiting office. I don't know. It just does that exist today? They don't yeah. have recruiting offices. I'm going to look it up. But I mean, you got to find warm bodies somehow.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at Uh, careers.cia.gov. It looks like a modern tech company (laughs) with all the the, the design and aesthetic on the website.
0: Okay, so Iggy Pop says, John Sinclair was always saying, you've got to get with the people. I was like, ah, the people. Oh man, what is that? Give me a break. The people don't give a fuck. Sinclair would say, we are going to politicize the youth. But the kids were like, what? Just give me some dope. They didn't care. That's how it really was. And John Sinclair is in here talking about lumping hippies. Those were our people. That was the White Panther Party. We were the voice of the Lumpen Hippie, just like the Black Panther Party was the voice of the Lumpen Proletariat. 80 Pop says, the MC5 went beyond having a sense of humor about themselves. They were a parody. I can't say how political the MC5 really were, but I certainly didn't feel it. But on a basic level, would they share their peanut butter with me? Yeah. And sometimes I would walk two or three miles to the trans love house, which was the MC5 house, to get a sandwich because he didn't have any money. And they would (laughs) never say to him, hey, don't eat that sandwich. And their girlfriends would sew his pants. So they were a decent bunch of guys, a nice bunch of guys to have around to blow up your local CIA recruiting office. So there's tons of stuff, especially in this section of how much of punk is political. Because now I think a lot of times, punk is thought of exclusively as political. Yeah, when you start
1: talking about bands like Crass and the perception of of punk music in in the 70s and rightfully so into the 80s uh and you start looking at bands that came in and around uh the reagan administration to answer the question yes i I think punk is absolutely at its core maybe not inherently political but obviously inherently countercultural, and that i think just happens to take the shape of being political
0: and another thing with all of this stuff is like how nuanced something like punk is it's like well, what part of punk? What type of punk? What wave of punk? What we're talking about now is really sort of the primordial ooze of punk rock. Yeah, it was it wasn't
1: um more than a stone's throw away from Link Ray playing rawhide and shredding his his uh speakers with a knife. Um, you know, it's it's much closer to that than we are to it, I think. And there are, like you said, there's so many nuances, like what is punk? And I think my point with that is like these bands that we're talking about. I would think of them as punk bands simply because of their, their attitude and, and their aesthetic, but they were just rock and roll bands.
0: That is exactly how David Johansson and the New York Dolls. That's exactly how they talked about what they did. And these are guys who dressed in, in drag. Like we were just, we were just playing rock music, you know, that's, that's really it. So there's a lot of problematic stuff around with the Stooges And I think this stuff, like, when I talk about this, I'm not trying to, like, cancel these guys. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to look at, like, how we evaluate people today and how we evaluate behavior. And then looking back at people like Iggy Pop, David Bowie, the Stooges, et cetera, et cetera. Scott Ashton, Ron Ashton, who's Scott's brother, Ron collected Nazi memorabilia. He had a ton of this shit. When Iggy got married, he says, I wore my Luftwaffe, fighter pilot's jacket with a white shirt with a nazi's knight cross with oak leaves and swords. On the jacket I had my iron cross first class, the ribbon bars, the Russian front iron cross second class, in my riding boots and purse, like just the the amount of detail he knew like rank insignias and all of this stuff we don't have to like go too much into detail about it now because this nazi memorabilia nazi iconography is going to keep popping up throughout this whole book but it's like just really strange like how fixated some of these guys were and part of that is they were children of like the 40s the 50s so they grew up in the shadow of nazism they're trying to process it and maybe that explains some of this all right so this is where we get into some really grim stuff in terms of sexual assault in the form of statutory rape iggy pop he was married it it doesn't work out after she leaves iggy pop says i was free again I could roam the streets looking like I used to. I walked into a hamburger joint where the kids went after school, and I saw Betsy. I never saw anything like that. She was very cute. She was the exact opposite of my wife. She was 13, and she looked at me penetratingly, so I guess you can figure out what happened next. Ron Ashton says, Betsy was four. He says she's 14. Iggy says she's 13. This is Ron Ashton. She was just a cute, funny-faced kid. Iggy would still fuck other girls on the side. He'd always go back to her. And then Iggy introduced me to Danielle, who is Betsy's best friend. And I'm going, what am I doing, man? I'm fucking a 14-year-old girl. So this would have been in 1968. That's when his marriage ended. Iggy Pop was 21 years old. And he's having sex with a 13 or 14-year-old. Ron Ashton was 20 years old. And Ashton goes on to say that Iggy actually met her parents. I guess they were really liberal. Ashton goes on to talk about going to New York, going to the factory. And Ron Ashton says, Danny Fields, Danny took us to meet Andy Warhol at the factory after the record came out. The factory was decorated in tinfoil and kind of grungy. We were Midwestern kids and it was too weird for us. All these New York speed freaks and homosexuals your lead singer mother smears himself in peanut butter throws hamburger meat at the crowd when you're on stage you set up a blender with water in it and mic it you collect Nazi memorabilia you have a ton of this shit and when your buddy got married you showed up to his wedding dressed head to toe like a Nazi but the people at the factory are freaking you out. It's not just the Ashtons. It's not just the Stooges. These attitudes were prevailing attitudes throughout even counterculture. I think that's a
1: fair assessment. My hope is that when, when people say, and, and even you and I say, like, this was the time, we're not at all excusing it.
0: So all of the sort of political stuff, it all comes to a head in the fifth chapter here with the MC5 going to New York. The MC5 are going to play the Fillmore East kick out the jams had just been released. But the background of all this is there's a radical East Village group called the Motherfuckers. And the Motherfuckers are demanding that Bill Graham, a promoter, turns the Fillmore East Over to them one night a week because it was in their community. So they said, you know, we should have access to this as like a community resource. So Bill Graham is under pressure. He thinks, wouldn't it be great if we present the band, the MC5, at the Fillmore and give away the tickets for free? The motherfuckers, they give him 500 tickets and the motherfuckers are all gathered outside. And then Danny Fields says he does the stupidest thing in his life. He's got to get the MC5 to the Fillmore East. Right. It's a band. There's several of them. So he just thinks, okay, I'll just rent them a limo because limos are big. You have the motherfuckers outside. The MC5 rolls up in a limo and get out. And it sets off a riot. They start screaming traitors, betrayal. You're one of them, not one of us. The MC5 are like, what the fuck? Like our manager just told us to get into this car to come down. (laughs) You're like, "What? what? But it's because this the status symbol of this limousine. Here's what's interesting to me. The MC5 didn't rent the limousine. Danny Fields rented it and put it on his expenses for Electra. And this happens a lot with today's online left where you need to have purity of appearance. Yesterday on Instagram, I'd posted some photos of me wearing a cola beanie, but I also had on a duffel coat. This guy hits me up in my DMs. He's like, hey, are you the kind of person who gets upset when people ask where they get stuff? Or are you cool about telling me where you got that duffel coat? So I said, no, I'm happy to tell you where I got it, but I am the kind of person who isn't going to defend myself over having runway pieces. But there are a lot of people who would just eat me alive, even though... I didn't pay for that coat. Like one of the things about working in apparel for nine years Mm -hmm. is you meet people and there are samples lying around and, Yeah. Either you get steep discounts or occasionally you get gifts. So the MC5 didn't rent this limousine. I didn't buy the coat. Should they have refused to take in the limousine? Should I refuse to wear the coat for the sake of appearances? I don't think so.
1: Much like you, I like nice things. I like my wardrobe, my closet, and that's incredibly materialistic. And I will own up to that. But I don't think that the hoodie or the shirt or the Burberry coat you wear or the luxury watch that you own defines nor should it influence your political, well, maybe it shouldn't influence your political ideology, but in a particular way, ideally in in a more global view
0: of the things that you own and buy. And so I really think it's interesting, like what we're seeing here with all these clashing like symbols of like, it mattered to these people a lot. That
1: Mm -hmm. The MC5
0: showed up in a limousine, they could have showed up in a, like a, a bus, I guess. Danny Fields could have rented like a... a it could have showed van. up in,
1: in a in a bus or a Sprinter van, but I think the whole thing that garnered such, such a reaction is that they're almost anti-celebrity when you're of a particular subculture that is wholly disinterested in celebrity culture. If you see any aspect of celebrity culture inching its way into your... Troposphere, uh, you're going to get really pissed about it, and and you're and you're going to think that they are interlopers or infiltrators, or I can I can understand their response.
0: That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about it specifically as celebrity. I had just thought of the limos luxury. So well, I, I think that's a good distinction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because you, you, you can easily draw the line from, well, who the fuck is the MC5? I thought they were like me, but they're showing up in a limo. how did they afford that? You know, because everybody in the crowd doesn't know that it was bought or rented for them. They just, they just see two and two and, and they put it together
0: they actually they get into the venue and the motherfuckers follow them in and rob tyner jumps up on stage at the fillmore and he says we didn't come to new york for politics we came to new york for rock and roll and that makes things even worse for them and so there is an actual riot going on people setting things on fire people cutting down the curtains and eventually, like, the MC5 make a run for it. And after that, they were blackballed by the promoter who put the word out, like, do not book these guys. So this is after the whole brouhaha at the Fillmore East. There was the store, Hudson's, a chain store in Detroit. They had refused to sell the MC5 album because they had used the word motherfucker in the liner notes. They, they refused to have anything to do with the MC5. So what does the MC5 do when Hudson's put the kibosh on their album? They take out a full page ad in an underground newspaper that just said fuck Hudson's, but they put the Electra logo on the ad. This happened after an earlier dispute in which kick out the jams motherfucker had been a problem, but the band agreed to change that to kick out the jams brothers and sisters. And before long, these guys are just too hot to handle. The last bit on the MC5 is when they finally signed a contract. Here's what they spend their money on. Wayne Kramer... Got an XKE Jag. Mike Davis got a Buick Riviera. <laughs> Fred Smith got a 66 fastback Corvette with a 327. And Rob Tyner got a station wagon. Smart. Move. And Dennis Thompson got a 67 Corvette that had six taillights, 390 horsepower, and a purple hardtop. After that, Wayne Kramer says they were purged from the White Panther Party for counter revolutionary ideals because we bought sports cars that our parents signed for. All right, so we're going to have to jam through some stuff. So basically, David Bowie is in the book a good bit. Jane Country talks about the influence of the New York crowd on Bowie. So there was a production, a stage production of an Andy Warhol play called Pork. And they were in London. They go to see Bowie. And at that point, have you heard like early David Bowie when he was on the Darum label? I don't think so. It's awful. It's just awful. (laughs) It's this terrible, folky shit. With lyrics like, my mustache was stiffly waxed and one foot long. I had a, a CD that was like the Darum anthology. There was one good song on there called Let Me Sleep Beside You. The rest of it. Oh, and Space Oddity. Space Oddity was like the end of that era. I don't know if it came out on Darum, but it was sort of the end of like David Bowie as a folky. Okay, So it looks like it was just his first record. Self-titled was on Darum. Okay. Uh, at least in 67. In the UK. And so what happens is Bowie sees all these folks. They're from the factory. They're very glamorous mm-hmm. and they're dressed like it. He points them out and says, oh, hey, the folks from Pork are here in the audience. And like one of the women stands up and lifts her shirt up and like shakes her boobs for the audience. You know, and they're all like very extroverted and, and all of that. They're very fabulous. They're all from the factory milieu. And Bowie... That was one of his very early like transformations when he sees the glam aspect and starts moving away from this folky thing. So with the book, there's a ton of stuff about Patti Smith and Mapplethorpe. Honestly, for me, this was like, and I'm not trying to cast any aspersions at Patti Smith's work or her talent or accomplishments or anything at all, but just the way she and Mapplethorpe were so like overtly social climbers is Mm -hmm. really hard to take again has nothing to do with her quality of work but there's a ton of stuff about them in the book if you're into that you should check it out so then we get into the new york dolls so this is jerry nolan from the dolls he says in the beginning a lot of the new york dolls audience was gay but of course we were all straight we were all girl crazy and let me tell you something it turns out women knew immediately it was the men who were confused the women i knew i don't care what we wore And they loved us for it, that we had the balls to look and act the way we did. It was fun for them. My experience has bared that out 100%. Really? Women always know it's the guys who are confused. So like, in the interest of time, I'll just tell you one quick anecdote in college, right? When I got like six earrings and the hair and all this stuff, and I'm walking out of a bar with a woman, we're headed back to my apartment. And this group of frat boys is walking down the street and one of them yells, what the fuck is she doing with that rainbow fucking F word? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I am the one with the girl. You are the one with the guys. And what you don't understand is that your attitude about me is the reason why I'm going home with the girl and you're with the guys. Yep. And that's something that these Neanderthals can never really grasp. To this day, if you want women to talk to you, have the balls to wear women's clothing. It worked for the dolls in the 70s, and it works for me wearing Tupac bandana and women's yoga tights in yoga today. Trust me on this. Just trust try me. it. Trust try Jerry it. Trust <clears throat> Jerry Nolan trust me, your buddy Cola, and start wearing women's clothing. David Johansson, he says, there wasn't a lot of intellectualizing going on when we started the New York Dolls. It was just a bunch of guys practicing in a storefront who started playing together. I don't know where the glitter thing came from. We were just very ecological about clothes. It was just about taking old clothes and wearing them again. I think they called it glitter rock because some of the kids who used to come to see us put glitter in their hair or on their faces. The press Figured it was glitter rock. The term itself came from some writer, but it was just classical rock and roll. We used to do Otis Redding songs, Sonny Boy Williamson songs, Archie Bell and the Drell songs, but we didn't consider ourselves glitter rock. We were just rock and roll. And we thought that's the way you were supposed to be if you were in a rock and roll band, flamboyant. Later in the book, I think it's Jerry Nolan talks about how everybody has a Johnny Thunders clone. Johnny Thunders was the guitarist, lead guitarist for the Dolls. He says, Poison has a Johnny Thunder's clone. Motley Crue has a clone. And so I'm reminded of this woman. I remember reading an anecdote. This woman said she was waiting tables and she was wearing a Smith's t-shirt and she was waiting on Bon Jovi, the band. They said, you listen to those and use the homophobic slur. Sure. And again, like Bon Jovi, teased-out hair, mascara, but... But yet still
1: strikingly homophobic.
0: (laughs) It's so strange to me! I Do you you know your boss?
1: Like, have you seen your music videos? Like, why are we talking
0: like this? (laughs) When the dolls go to London, what we begin to see here is, like, the cross-pollination of punk, and how it bounces back and forth from the United States, where it starts, and then you've got the dolls going to England, and you've got the sex pistols coming here then in the 90s you know you've got the berkeley punks like rancid who mm-hmm. are dressed like english punks mm-hmm. <laughs> but so this stuff just keeps and that's like one of the cool things about this is you can't really it's hard to tease out these discrete strains of punk because everything gets pollinated cross-pollinated mm-hmm. really quickly right when David Johansson is talking about the early New York Dolls audiences. He says the audiences there were pretty depraved, so we had to be in there with them. We couldn't come out in three piece suits and entertain that bunch. They wanted something more for their money, and we were very confrontational. We were very raw. We were really into confronting the audience. Hey, you stupid bastards, get up and dance. We were not polite. So, again, this is another example of confrontation and punk, and this has been something throughout the book with the Velvet Underground, with the plastic exploding inevitable, and the Velvets have their back to the audience while these people are like cracking bull whips and going through S&M stuff and all this other business. Then we have The Doors with Jim Morrison at the University of Michigan, like singing in the Betty Boop voice when Iggy Pop sees them. Then you have Iggy Pop smearing himself of peanut butter and st- throwing throwing raw hamburger at the audience and now we have the new york dolls being confrontational with their audience and this is something that later on especially in the uk with gobbing spitting on the band the band spitting on you there's an anecdote in here when the pistols come to America that a little kid like went up to Johnny Rotten and asked for his autograph and he had a one of a Sex Pistols LP and Rotten just spat on it and the kid was like oh my god thank you so much <laughs> and Lee Childers who was a photographer talks about how the dolls created a huge scene and it became extremely fashionable to go see them you didn't just go see the dolls you had to be seen seeing the dolls he says David Bowie came to see the New York dolls a lot Lou Reed came to see them a few times. People were kind of like learning from them about presentation. I always come back to this idea. I probably always will. There's always going to be this idea that clothes don't matter. They are superficial, yada, yada, yada. And the obvious starting point for that is, well, if you think clothes aren't important, just try not wearing any outside your home and see how that goes for you. That's kind of facile. And even beyond that. We have all these examples where the New York Dolls would not have been the New York Dolls, as Johansson says, if they'd been wearing three piece suits, but also if they'd have been dressed like the Doors. Like it was part of that band's identity to dress the way that they did. People talked about how they were bringing the street to the stage. With all of these bands, like dresses, a really important part of it i mean think about the ramones they had the white t-shirt the 501s the chuck taylor's and the asymmetrical perfecto motorcycle jacket before that joey ramone was in a band called sniper and i think it was at that point that he was dressing head to toe glitter huge boots his brother says that with the boots he was like seven feet tall all glammed out in the 70s hitchhiking down the Queens Boulevard to get to gigs and how this is something that could get you killed at the time. He's 6'6", very tall. And then he's wearing platforms on top of that. So dress is always going to be an essential part of any community. And again, if you don't believe me, just try... Showing up to a MAGA rally and being the only person dressed head to toe in black with your face covered. See how that works out for you. Conversely, show up to Antifa direct action wearing a Nautica windbreaker and a MAGA cap and see how far you get there. David Johansson said, people who saw the dolls said, hell, anybody can do this. I think what the dolls did as far as being an influence on punk was that we showed that anybody could do it. It used to be when we were kids, rock and roll stars were like, wow, I got my satin jacket and I'm really cool and I live in this gilded cage and I drive a pink Cadillac or some crap like that. The dolls debunked that whole myth and that whole sexuality because basically we were these kids from New York City who spit and fart in public, were raunchy and just debunked everything. It was just so obvious what we were doing to rock and roll. We were bringing it back to the street. Mm-hmm. i just thought that that was all a whole diy aesthetic or approach is obviously something huge to to all forms of punk regardless at this point in the book we're getting kind of away from the dolls a little bit and more into television richard hell and Tim Verlaine. richard hell said music had become so bloated it was all these leftover 60s guys playing stadiums being treated like they were very important people acting like they were very important people. It wasn't rock and roll. It was some kind of stage act. It was all about the lights and the poses with the dolls. It was all about the street put on stage. That was another cool thing about them. They were exactly the same off stage as they were on. There are a couple important t-shirts in this book. One is a t-shirt that Richard Hell wore around New York. He says he doesn't even remember wearing it but this is one of those things like how everybody was at the first sex pistols gig, right? Mm -hmm. Or how like 80,000 people were at a sporting event where the arena seats Mm -hmm. (laughs) 40,000 people just misremember it. But people remember seeing Richard hell in this t-shirt that that was a real t-shirt that did exist, that had a bullseye, a target on the front of it and said, please kill me. And people were talking about how this guy wearing that thing around New York at that point in time, in the 70s was like completely outrageous. So before we do leave the dolls, though, we have a couple couple great things. David Johansson saying David Bo used to come and see us play at the Mercer Arts Center. I had never heard of him before. I remember he used to come around <laughs> in these quilted drag outfits, and he asked me, Who does your hair? I said, Johnny Thunders, which was the truth. <laughs> that's how Bowie would approach this, right? He would go to a salon to have things done. And these guys were just doing these. You've just got like junkies doing each other's hair and dressing and drag. So I thought that was kind of wonderful. So at this point in the book, the Stooges go to London to record. And Iggy Pop says, I used to walk around London through the park and stuff with this leopard jacket. I had a cheetah skin jacket. It had a big cheetah on the back and all the old men in London would drive by in their cars and they would try to stop and cruise me. All I like to do is walk around the streets with a heart full of napalm. I always thought heart full of soul was a good song. So I thought, what's my heart full of? I decided it was basically full of napalm. We've got Malcolm McLaurin at this point talking about the recording of raw power. McLaurin, McLaren, I always say McLaurin, McLaren. And he's talking about the dolls and the stooges. And he says during the raw power days when Iggy was in London with Bowie, I found Iggy incredibly vain because he was an incredibly handsome character, but I wasn't taken with Iggy in the same way as I was with the dolls. I think one of the reasons was because Iggy was less about fashion. I think it's a stupid thing to say, but it's the truth. I didn't see the fashion about Iggy. What I saw was a very tough, incredibly sexual, wonderfully enjoyable singer. I adored the album Raw Power, but I didn't want to walk into a guy With a lion's head full of drugs and pills shouting and screaming raw power at me. I didn't want to throw myself into a junkie's lap like that. I just wasn't set up for it. I was too naive. I didn't fancy the notion. It didn't sound trendy, nice. There was no lipstick there. It didn't have the fashion element that the New York Dolls had, that fashion twist. Just like that crappy old lipstick on the collar. It's kind of pathetic when I think about it now, all that tardiness, but that's what I liked. I always thought the parties were going to be better. I always thought the scene was going to be better. The dolls just looked more attractive. This is coming from a guy who really has become synonymous with the Sex Pistols and English punk. I mean, this is why the Sex Pistols were, from a certain point of view, including my point of view, a boy band. That's how he looked at it. That's how he managed them. Now, the irony here that he didn't want to get involved with junkies, so he went with the New York Dolls, is that when the dolls would later on tour florida i mean the new york dolls in florida in the 70s already sound strange they end up staying in a trailer park all of them the drug thing is completely out of control and mclaren is left to deal with that mess and to his credit it sounds like he actually did right by those guys and did Mm -hmm. get guys into rehab and people in there saying like i actually credit him with saving lives People kind of think of McLaren as sort of this mercenary and heartless. And but he did come through for those guys. And he never and this is true, with, I think, with Vicious, too, because, you know, he went hat in hand to the Virgin guy, Branson, Mm -hmm. to get bail for Vicious after he had already had sort of adversarial business dealings with Branson, McLaren. So, like, he did show up for people when they needed him. When the Dolls get signed to a management contract, they go to England. They're a media sensation. They're incredibly polarizing. People are saying this is the best thing ever. People are saying this is the worst thing ever. And this is something with the English press, like in the 1990s, before Suede had debuted an album, before they had released music. They're on the cover of the NME. So <laughs> The English music press have always loved hype. And that was true back in the 70s. The Dolls end up opening for Rod Stewart. I don't know a lot about his back catalog. I don't know what Rod Stewart was like in the 1970s. I just think of like 1990s Rod Stewart, where he kind of looked like my lesbian aunt and he (laughs) he, he just like he was adult contemporary. Right. Yeah. By that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. With the dolls in England again, like you've got, the dolls going to England, the pistols coming to New York, people in England are getting exposed to the dolls and the look and all of the styles and the sounds are kind of, again, cross pollinating. There's a ton of stuff in this book, again, that we're leaving out a ton of great stories about political maneuvering and tragedy. So there's so much in this book in terms of personal stories, personalities, but also like just real human stuff, like especially like D.D. Dee Dee Ramone it talks about D.D. Dee Dee and Connie, his wife. And like, it really seemed like these were people trying their best to love each other and trying their best to support each other. But they're, you know, I mean, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this, but they were both street level sex workers. And when you're in that environment, there's just a lot of risk and a lot of violence and you're ed- you have to be edgy, you have to be prepared. Then when you introduce the drugs into that, the volatility ramps up. And if you're trying to love someone and be in a stable relationship, it's not amenable to that. And so there's so much of that all through the book. And it's really fascinating. It's really heartbreaking. But again, that's all stuff that we don't really, we're not really going to address here. Okay, Bob Gruen was a photographer, filmmaker. He directed the New York Dolls video documentary, Looking for a Kiss." So Gruen says, the first time I saw the dolls was after Billy died, right at the time they got signed. I was hanging out, flipping knives with the Hells Angels on Third Street. What a sentence. Yeah, I was hanging out, flipping knives with the Hells Angels on Third Street. The Mercer Art Center was nearby, and a friend had told me to drop by there. So one night on my way home, you know, from flipping knives with the Hells Angels, I did. I went upstairs and saw a strange assortment of people, not the kind of people I tended to hang out with. Some guy I knew walked past me with eyeliner on and I freaked out. I left. I always had a strange mix of friends, Alice Cooper, John Lennon, and I went to a lot of different kinds of shows, but I didn't have friends who wore makeup. The Hells Angels were shocking, but I didn't feel threatened by knives and guns. I felt threatened by guys in makeup and dresses. His friend talks him into going back. He gets a beer. And instead of noticing all the guys in makeup, I started noticing all of the girls in makeup. They were very attractive girls. And I thought, this is getting a lot more interesting. He says, you couldn't really tell who was in the band from who was on stage because of how everyone was was dressed. There was a whole row of bleacher seats that went up really steep around the stage. And it looked like a wall of people. Everybody was sort of milling around and dancing and singing and yelling all at once. And that was the first time I saw the New York Dolls. It was just the most exciting thing I'd ever seen in my life. It's just really interesting to me that this guy and he says, you know, I hung out with the Hells Angels and like knives and bikers didn't scare me, but guys in dresses did. It's such a like telling and rare articulation of like homophobia. Yeah. Of like being afraid. It's very specific. This. Okay. So this is Nancy Spongeon talking about the dolls. The New York doll started a scene. They were the center of attention. Everything came after them. They were different. Nobody ever dressed the way they did or talked the way they did or played music the way they did. And they were the first band that I was hanging out with all the time. I slept with David Johansson. I slept with Johnny Thunders. I slept with Syl Sylvain. I slept with Jerry Nolan. Everybody but Arthur Kane. So, as we get towards the Ramones, there's a lot of stuff about hustling. We mentioned this earlier about how much of punk culture was in survival mode. Like, these weren't art kids, Mm-mm. you know, or at least not art school kids. They didn't have student loans. They weren't cashing their, they weren't living off their overs checks. Like, Dee Dee Ramone and a bunch of other people, they were literally turning tricks to get by mm-hmm. to survive. And like, the music came out of that. The editors of the book, the authors of the book, Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain, they do a really good job staggering these transcripts. They must have had just hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews they had to go through. They do a really good job of like staggering stories. So you'll read about the dolls early years. Then there'll be a chapter that's just all groupies talking about what it was like from their perspective. Then there'll be something else. Then we're back to the dolls. And when we come to the chapter called The Death of the Dolls, the first person <laughs> who gets mentioned is Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> so when he started managing these guys, he puts them in red suits and puts a Soviet flag behind them on stage and just completely killed them. They were completely uncomfortable. These were not political guys. And McLaren, it doesn't really seem like he knew what he was doing like he talks about how he wanted to make a political statement with them, but how exactly? I'm not sure. Jerry Nolan says this fucking around with Malcolm was too artsy fartsy. He had us dressing up and matching red leather suits and playing in front of a giant communist flag. It was so stupid. Malcolm caught us at a really vulnerable moment. The limos were long gone. Then Malcolm had booked this horrible string of gigs trust in Florida and these terrible out of the way clubs. And we weren't happy about it. Hey, what the F word is up, B words, this is your Easter egg. The first two people who hit me up either via Twitter direct message or email and just write the word punk either in the direct message or in the subject line of your email, those two people will get their choice of one of the t-shirts on the Cola site, which I will send to you for free. Once again, the deal is two people, the first two people who hit me up via twitter direct message or email the email is info at the com, and the twitter is at the Cola c-o-r-p, C-O-R-P at the Cola corp or email info at the com. first two people who hit me up will get one t-shirt apiece all right all right back to the pod so the New York dolls in the 70s touring Florida wearing red designer suits and playing in front of a Soviet flag. Even though that's kind of an empty gesture, the Soviet flag, with mm-hmm. it would still trigger people, which I think is what McLaren wanted, right? He wanted to yeah. trigger he wanted to trigger responses from the audience. From here on out, if you're into the Ramones, there's tons of stuff in there just about the band forming. And again, Joey Ramone and Dee's relationship with Connie, again, is compelling in and of itself. As we get into the book, there's tons of stuff about Nazi imagery. We talked about Ron Ashton, a few other examples. But we get into this thing where Dee Dee grew up in Germany. I'm almost certain he was a military brat. And he grew up in Germany, like digging around for war relics. I grew up in the country and we would dig around for arrowheads. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Didi would dig around for like swastikas and shit because they were there, you know, like the war had just happened. What, like 10 years before or something? Danny Fields says, I wrote a story for High Times Magazine wondering why you can't say Nazi in popular music, but you can't put out a paperback book without a swastika on the cover. That continues to amuse me. And I thought the Ramones lyrics were funny. I mean, Dee, Dee wasn't talking about the extermination of a race. It was more of a one-on-one thing, you know, when the bedroom door closes, I'm a Nazi. This is in reference to a Ramones lyric. Fields goes on to say, no one takes the extermination of European Jews more seriously than I do. I mean, I don't play around with that. I don't think it's amusing. But if you want to buy a gorgeous black leather coat with an SS on it, which is what Ron Ashton did, then why not? I have a bookshelf full of books on the third reich does that make me a nazi i like to read about it it's one of my hobbies and he's also fields is also doing this because he's jewish and a lot of his relatives were murdered by nazis he's talking about heinrich Himmler. he says how did how did a chicken farmer end up killing six million of my relatives that's just unbelievable to me but i don't blame people or condemn them for being fascinated But if there was the remotest hint of them embracing what the Nazis advocated, I would have severed my relationship instantly with them. And I don't want to excuse it at all. But there are excuses for things and there are reasons for things. And without making excuses for any of this use of Nazi imagery, which became a big thing in punk, and we see it here, it's at the beginning. And then, you know, kids in England would wear swastikas in the 70s and shit.
1: You've got bands like uh it was the Dead Boys that used Nazi regalia? Yeah, I think there's the potential for academic merit. Like you said, you know, he had his uh or he had a bookshelf full of books on the Third Reich. It was an interest. I think you can find academic merit for educating yourself, but there's a distinction there between what he was doing, I think, and all this other shit we've talked about.
0: I think part of it is probably just young people post war trying to like process. The swastika is yeah, definitely a part of it. Because the swastika remains one of the most powerful images in the world. Like, mm-hmm. not powerful in a good way. I mean, before it was co-opted, it was powerful in a serene and peaceful way. If anybody is to rehabilitate the swastika, mm-hmm. it is probably not white people on Etsy selling whirling log turquoise earrings. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, that's
1: a fair... That's a fair guess. It's probably not gonna be them. <laughs> right. Um but if they do it,
0: that's hats off. Hats off. With Crass, their their logo. Like a, like a crossbuster similar to Bad Religion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they is kind of like a sort of an iron crossish thing with, but also like an ouroboros because there's like a snake, and it has a very fascistic feel. There are bands that have flirted with totalitarian fascist imagery, yeah. and then there are bands that try to
1: process it. The Crass logo, as from Wikipedia, was an amalgam of several quote icons of authority, including the Christian cross, the swastika, the Union Jack, and a
0: two-headed ouroboros. I don't even really know much about Leibach, but I feel they definitely fit into this realm, right? Of like either processing that stuff or, but industrial bands have done a lot of that stuff, which makes sense because industrial music itself is so harsh and heavy and a product of shit capitalist culture that it makes sense that they would use that kind of imagery too. But It is kind of like playing with fire. There's definitely less acceptance now for people like processing Nazi imagery. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Genia Ravon was producing for the dead boys. Well, she says, my parents were in concentration camps. I was born in Poland, right smack dab in the middle of World War II. I have no family because of the Nazis. I remember biting my mother because she put her hand over my mouth when we were escaping from Poland because she didn't want me to make a sound. It was very, very bad. I still have the aftermath of all this shit. And so at this point, she is being introduced to the dead boys and they're wearing swastikas. She's producing for them and she tells them, take those things fucking off. They stand for a race of people that were almost annihilated. They stand for that your manager is Jewish. The owner of this recording studio is Jewish and I'm Jewish and I'm your producer and I can lose the drums very fucking easy. So she's talking to the drummer specifically and she says, I knew the dead boys weren't Nazis. I knew that they were young punks, anything that's bad they wanted to do. I was there once, but not with swastikas. And so when she's talking, it's funny that she says like anything this bad they wanted to do because the cringiest part in the whole book comes when Malcolm McLaren says as a child, whenever they used to tell me to write, I will not be bad. I just changed the not to, I will be so bad. And that amused <laughs> me to no end. <laughs> I'm like, really? What a child. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. This is a transcript and we don't know what his affect was when he was mm-hmm. saying this, but it really, and just because it's Malcolm McLaren who was kind of like king of taking himself too seriously, I just changed the knot. To, I will be so bad. Good God. He so- thought that was a riot. <laughs> so again, when I say that the second time I read this book, it seemed like there was so much childishness. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. Angela Bowie is in the book and we get her talking about one of the more infamous moments from bowie's career but she says i have a real problem with ignorant people particularly ignorant people that embrace fascism And David Bowie has a streak of ignorance which is as wide as it is long. David's preoccupation with expressionism in Germany was one of those areas where my love for him died. At one point in England, David had gotten out at Victoria Station in an open-top Mercedes Landau limousine and did a Hitler salute, which was on the front page of three English newspapers. And I'll be honest with you, after that, I never wanted to see him again. And the rest of the time living with him and having a son with him was a nightmare, just trying to navigate how I could extricate myself from the situation I was in. Now, with this thing about him throwing the Nazi salute, have you heard of this instance? I have not. Okay. No. I mentioned on Twitter, I was like, yeah, you know, I had that photo. And then there's a photo. If you Google David Bowie concert, Kale, it should show a photo of him in a concert. Just palm arms straight up and out palm flat it is a roman salute it's the sea gale there's not much way around it based on his wardrobe it looks like he has transitioned away from the thin white duke into more of his like let's dance era i posted that you know why wasn't this guy canceled essentially or but somebody tweeted at me it was like lol when he was in the landau he was just waving the fans that apparently stands up where far out magazine wrote an article about Bowie and fascism and said that yes, he was just waving to fans. That's fine. But The second photo that you can find anywhere online where he's throwing that salute, that's not him waving to fans. I mean, there's just no way around it. In this article from Far Out magazine, he gave an interview back in the day and he said, you've got to have an extreme right wing front come up and sweep everything off its feet and tidy everything up. He also called Hitler the first rock star. And he said, Britain is ready for a fascist leader. I think Britain could benefit from a fascist leader. After all, fascism is really nationalism. I believe very strongly in fascism. People have always responded with greater efficiency, Jesus, under a regimental leadership. And there's a good article that I found on Medium called David Bowie in the Third Reich by a Dutch writer who goes by Jan Tien. I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but she splits hairs over this stuff because she's really trying to separate like the thin white Duke persona from David Bowie and this from that. But if you're like splitting hairs over how you how you talk positively about fascism, that's probably not good. So here's Legs McNeil. You know, we've talked a lot about punk evolution. Legs McNeil says Glitter Rock was about decadence, platform shoes and boys and eye makeup. David Bowie and androgyny, rich rock stars living their lives from Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories, Sally Bowles hanging out with drag queens, drinking champagne for breakfast and having menage a trois, menages a trois, excuse me, while the Nazis mm. slowly grab the power decadence seems so lame because decay suggests that there's still some time and there wasn't any more time. Things had collapsed. We had lost the war in Vietnam. Vice President Spiro Agnew had to resign because he was caught taking bribes in the White House. And Richard Nixon had the Watergate burglars break into the Democratic National Headquarters because he was so paranoid. I mean, fucking Nixon had won the election by the biggest landslide in history. He was just insane. And then he had to resign. And then President Gerald Ford told New York City to drop dead when it went bankrupt. I mean, New York City declared bankruptcy. Compared to what was going on in the real world, decadence seemed kind of quaint. So punk wasn't about decay. Punk was about annihilation. Nothing worked, so let's get right to Armageddon. You know, if you found out the missiles were on their way, you'd probably start saying what you always wanted to. So there's tons of other stuff that's really good. <laughs> there's great. There's great anecdotes. Legs McNeil is talking about Annie Leibovitz shooting the pistols. And how Johnny Rotten, like, can't be bothered. They're backstage after a show. And she's, this is Annie Leibovitz, right? Yeah. She says, well, this is for the cover of Rolling Stones." <laughs> Rolling Stone. So Rotten, like, grabs his hair and pulls it. And he says, well, then does my hair look all right? <laughs> it's just as much of a kind of twerp as Rotten was. It's <laughs> kind of wonderful. Imagine imagining him talking to, like, a serious artist that mm-hmm. way. Okay. The only other thing. That I'll say here, Legs McNeil, this is when the pistols came and all of a sudden punk. Punk is everywhere and punk is kids with safety pins. It's funny, but now punk was being used to describe something the world thought of as English. When we first started the magazine, we had subscribed to a newspaper clipping service that sent us a clipping every time the term punk was used. So we had watched as the name had grown into this phenomenon. Four years earlier, we had pasted the Bowery with bumper stickers that said, watch out, punk is coming. Now that it was here, I didn't want any part of it. Overnight, punk had become as stupid as everything else. This wonderful vital force that was articulated by the music was really about corrupting every form. It was about advocating kids to not wait to be told what to do, but make life up for themselves. It was about trying to get people to use their imaginations again. It was about not being perfect. It was about saying it was okay to be amateurish and funny. That real creativity came out of making a mess. It was about working with what you got in front of you and turning everything embarrassing, awful and stupid in your life to your advantage. Punk wasn't ours anymore. It had become everything we hated. And that, I think, is such a good articulation of mm-hmm. the transition that I think we'll talk about next, because I think next you and I are going to read England's Dreaming Chronicle of British Punk. Yes. And of course, from my perspective, dress and fashion will be even more essential because it launched in England in a lot of ways as an exercise in fashion, as a marketing ploy from Malcolm McLaurin and Vivian Westwood to sell their clothes. Exactly. Okay, got to go, got to go, got to go, go, go.